Radio. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome everybody to John Dillinger part three of three. This is the final installment. I wanted to put it all in one final episode instead of doing a part four. Obviously, I always say it's going to be X amount of days, and then I'm going to release it. It always takes longer, let's be honest, because I'm a weirdo about this shit, and John Dillinger is something that I don't want to screw up, especially because of the research that has gone into this by other people. So, before we get started, I do have to thank some new Patreon subscribers. Pam Gusta, Jerry Sanford, Key Sardi, and Glenn Catlett. Thank you guys very much. You $10 Patreon subscribers, please get a hold of me. Email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com so we can set up a time for, you know, those video chats or whatever. Uh, if you don't want to do it, then uh, that's fine too. Also got to give a huge shout out to Kay, who gave me a one-time donation on Venmo. It was extremely generous. Thank you very, very much. Uh, For those of you who do want to do that as opposed to Patreon, you can always uh, hit me up on Venmo at MC Podcast. Let me state some sources real quick. Of course, we have the books by J. Robert Nash that I have stated previously in the first two parts. Uh, Great books. I highly, highly suggest that anybody go out and get them. Dillinger Dead or Alive and the Dillinger Dossier. Amazing sources of information, lots of nice little details, cool details in there. But just be aware, a couple books written to prove a certain narrative, so you have to take that into account when reading them, but I highly suggest them. You can find them on Amazon or anywhere else. Some other sources, we got Prairie Public Newsroom, an article from February 19th, 2021. We have the Chicago Herald and Examiner, a five-part series that was written in August 1934, We also have Dillinger's Wild Ride, which is a book by Elliot Gorn in 2009, and we have a book by Blackie Audette called Rap Sheet, My Life Story, and from what I saw, there's a couple different publication dates depending on which publisher, whether it's hardcover, paperback, but the original one that I saw was in 1954, so that's also a source of information. A couple upcoming episodes, uh, I think next one on the list is The Gardner Museum Heist. Uh, I had a suggestion for that a while back. Never really gotten into a heist before, so I, I'm kind of kind of looking forward to dive into that. I think it's an interesting one. Uh, after that, probably going to do a paranormal case. I also have a couple interviews coming up as well. If anybody has suggestions, obviously you can email me. And I also have a Q&A coming up as well for the 200th episode. So if you do have a question, you can always hit me up on social media. Just ask it. I'll answer it during that uh, that episode. You can also email me. But anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get on with the show. So to get part three going, I want to say a quote by author Darren Aronofsky. And it says, When your mind becomes obsessed, you filter everything else out and find that thing everywhere. As you guys know, even when I do uh, true crime cases, or, you know, most of them are unsolved, or paranormal, or anything like that for that matter, it is so important to not have confirmation bias. Like, you have to have an open mind. You have to not lose that objectivity. Now, I'm not saying that the research done by J. Robert Nash is all confirmation biased. But what I am saying is his research over the course of 15 years, which is phenomenal, I have absolutely nothing but respect for this man. I would love to talk to him someday. But these books were written with a specific narrative in mind. 
So you have to keep that in mind. You know, if you do decide to read the books or you do the research yourself and you see his name pop up or a couple other people for that matter, not just him, not picking on him, but my job as a podcaster researching shit like this, whether it's crime, this, history, blah, blah, blah. My goal is to give you all the information that I can and keep it well-rounded so that you guys can decide for yourselves. It's not my job to like push a certain narrative to make you think the way I do. I don't I don't play that shit. Not going to happen. So, let's go ahead and get on with this episode and let's talk about Jimmy Lawrence. Because Jimmy Lawrence supposedly is the guy who was killed and duped in the place of John Dillinger. So, after the book Dillinger Dead or Alive came out, this was the first book, all these people started coming out of the woodwork and they started reaching out to J. Robert Nash. Now, some of these people were crazy as shit. They had said that they were witnesses to the shooting. Some said that they were Dillinger. Some claimed that they saw him here or there. So, this dude's trying to filter out. He actually took a couple leads as well, and uh, followed up on those, but they, you know, didn't end up being anything important. Uh, there was one elderly woman that called him and told him that she had operated a pool hall, and this was in the same alley that John Dillinger was shot in, just south of the biograph, and she said that she had operated it for years before that night, and she goes on to say that she was sitting on the ledge of the stairs outside that night. And just after 10.30 p.m., she saw a young man being pushed face forward by a large man. She later found out that the big guy was Martin Zarkovich. And as we know, Martin Zarkovich was a large guy. He was a tall dude, pretty well built. So that does make sense. And then she says, she watched as he laid face first in the alley. Her exact quote was, there seemed to be another man shooting at the fellow on the ground from the other side of the alley, but I could not be sure. I ducked back into the pool room and shut the door. Then she waited for a few minutes and went to check it out. She went and saw the dead man up close and she said that she knew him. She said that his name was Jimmy Lawrence and that he had hung around the pool hall for about three years since the right around the fall of 1931 and that he was a pimp for Anna Sage. Now, it should be known that in the fall of 1931, as we all know, John Dillinger was still in prison. So, she said that she went to the cops about it, about the fact that it was Jimmy Lawrence and not John Dillinger, and the cops told her, quote, you say something like that, you'll get a hole in your head. And that's what she said. And of course, she refused to give her name or address because she was still scared about it. And uh, there actually was a pool hall back there in 1934, though. So, how much of that is truth? I don't know. It was put in the book, so I'm assuming that it was considered some important information that helped verify what J. Robert Nash is trying to prove by saying John Dillinger was not the man shot outside the biograph. Now, in an article in the Chicago Herald and Examiner from October 24th, 1934... Polly Hamilton, who was with Anna Sage when this man was shot, she actually did this huge article where she talked about how she met him and how they spent their time together. And then, of course, that night at the Biograph, all that stuff. And uh, she said she met Dillinger at Chicago's Barrel of Fun nightclub in early June of 34. She said he came up and asked, what would happen if I called you up some night? Dillinger had introduced himself to her as Jimmy Lawrence, a clerk at the board and trade. And the very next day, he definitely called her, and that night, he was waiting for her outside the restaurant where she worked at 1209 Wilson Avenue. She said that he grinned and said, My name is Jimmy Lawrence, if you've forgotten. She said that they went dancing to the movies and to the amusement park. A few weeks later, they celebrated Dillinger's 31st birthday at the French Casino nightclub. Now, she goes on to say there were some clues that she might have known it was him. She says, One of the girls I knew said one time, He looks like John Dillinger, but I didn't think so. You judge people you know by the way they act as well as the way they look, and he was better to me than any man I knew. 
And, of course, Hamilton claimed not to have known Dillinger's true identity, so she would not be charged with harboring a criminal. Pretty smart move on her behalf, I suppose. But Hamilton described Dillinger as an Indiana farm boy who liked a home-cooked meal. She said, There wasn't much pretense about him. He said he was just an Indiana farm boy. He drank very little alcohol. I don't believe I ever heard him swear. He was generous and considerate and never liked to hurt anyone's feelings. She also says that they did enjoy their time that they spent together, but she really doubted that Dillinger was in love with her. And here's a direct quote from her. Jimmy Lawrence wasn't grim, wasn't a killer, any more than he was a board of trade clerk. I wouldn't let him call for me because they thought he was a sissy. With his gold-rimmed glasses and thick mustache that the authorities say now he used for a disguise. One of the shyest fellows I ever saw, but I liked that in him. Off we drove in a taxi cab to the stables to dine and dance. After that, it was almost every evening. It was always a taxi cab, too. They say John Dillinger drove high-powered cars, but Jimmy Lawrence meant taxi cabs and red hots to me. He drove in more taxis that I'd ever known were even in Chicago, and it didn't matter where we had dined, he always had to have a red hot before he'd go home. Only twice in all the time I knew him did he drive a car. Lots of things happened that should have told me he was John Dillinger. The scars from having his face altered and removing that mole might have warned me. I asked him about them, though, and he said, Listen, I was in an auto accident. And that's the direct quote from her side of the story and how she met him. Obviously, notice that she distinctly said, My name is Jimmy Lawrence. Either she was seeing a guy named Jimmy Lawrence that looked like Dillinger, or John Dillinger actually was going by the name Jimmy Lawrence. And he was known to use different names, obviously, when he would meet girls. I mean, he used a different name when he first met Billy Frechette as well. So it's not out of the realm of possibilities here. So Polly was the one who introduced him to Sage, and Sage was the one who recognized him as Dillinger. And then after he died, or supposedly died, whatever the case is, Polly Hamilton went into hiding. Uh, when the FBI tried to find her, Anna Sage told them that Polly had probably gone back to Fargo, which is where she was from. And when the FBI couldn't find her, they just kind of assumed that maybe she had committed suicide. But uh, no, she went into hiding. She was living under aliases for the rest of her life. She did go back to Chicago. She waited tables and got married and just lived a super quiet life until she passed away. Now, I do have to note a photograph that was in Billy Frechette's purse when she was arrested in 1934 with Dillinger. And uh, J. Robert Nash claims that this could be Jimmy Lawrence because... There is a pretty striking resemblance to John Dillinger, kind of. It's a super old photo. It's taken from a little far away, but the dude's wearing a, a gun belt, like on his chest, one of the that you pull from, like the gun from a rib cage or whatever. So they assume that Jimmy Lawrence was some kind of low-level criminal, and uh, you know he was basically sacrificed. But we also have to remember that Billy Frechette's ex-husband was also a criminal. And the similar appearances could be just because she has a type. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've seen some chicks break up with their boyfriends, and then their next boyfriend, like, kind of looks like the last one. You know, it, it is a thing. People have their preferences. They have their types. So, we should note that. And for those in the Facebook group, you saw that picture. I posted it. And uh, some people claim that could be Jimmy Lawrence. Personally, I don't know for sure who it is. It's definitely not John Dillinger, but if I had to take a guess and bet money on it, I'd probably say it was Billy Frechette's ex-husband, who, by the way, was serving prison time, and that is the reason that they got divorced. She did not realize that he was a criminal until they came and arrested him, and he got significant prison time. John Dillinger actually paid for their divorce as well, so there is that. Now let's move uh, ahead and get to Black Yaudet. Now, Blackie Audette is a super interesting dude. I'm not even going to lie. Like, he had a long, long criminal history from the 1920s until the 1970s. I mean, the dude has a crazy life story. He was actually from a wealthy family, 
And after he got out of the war in World War One, he decided to get married and have some kids. Well, his wife and kids were killed by a drunk driver. So after that, he basically said, fuck it. And just started, like, doing all this criminal shit. He was bootlegging. Uh, he was out of the Pacific Northwest, so he was bootlegging up through, like, Northern California, up into Canada, and all this shit. He was originally from Canada, if I remember correctly. He was a super interesting guy. But I do have some problems with some of the shit that he says, okay? Like, you have to believe a lot of things to believe that this dude was friends with John Dillinger. As we all know from the first three-part series I did, John Dillinger kept his circle small. He did not trust very many people. Super family-oriented guy. Now keep all that stuff in mind. So apparently Blackie Audette was there the night at the Biograph when the shots were fired. He also said that he knew about the plan to do the swap between him and Jimmy Lawrence. He claims that he was close friends with John Dillinger in 1933-34, and he said that they robbed several banks together in spring and early summer of 1934. And J. Robert Nash does have over 60 hours of recorded conversations with him. And this is like the money, like but there needs to be more recorded conversations with some of the people that he talked to. But he did this with Blackie Audette. So in 1979... Nash interviewed him while Audette was in prison, all right? <laughs> now, Blackie was not a very healthy guy at this time. He was having several seizures while he was in prison, and he was old as shit when he was in there, too. He was paroled into the care of J. Robert Nash in 1975, and he just died like a month after he had gotten released. Now, Audette claims that he had kept in contact with Dillinger's family over the years after the Biograph shooting because that's how close they were. And he also said that John Dillinger was still alive at that time of the interviews in 1979 and was living on the West Coast but wouldn't give a specific location. He said Dillinger's sister would write him letters and send him postcards while in prison. Now, like I had mentioned, Audette did several prison stints, including two sentences in Alcatraz. And to be perfectly honest, I would love to see those letters and postcards. I would absolutely love that. But by 1934, Blackie Audette had made friends with Pierpont, Van Meter, and John Dillinger. He says in May of 1934, there weren't many members of the Dillinger gang left because of either prison time or death. So him and Dillinger robbed several banks in the Midwest, and they were both trying to make $100,000 each, and then they were going to leave the country. And that was their main goal, so they went on this huge bank robbing spree. Now at the time, Blackie Audette was also wanted by authorities, because he was an escaped prisoner as well. And then he goes on to say that their friendship was a very deep one. You know, they were very, very close friends. When him and J. Robert Nash sat down and Nash totally just asked him a shitload of questions. And I'll be perfectly honest. If he was asking those questions in a court of law, this would be a prime example of leading a witness. All right. Because he's just throwing the shit out there. And Blackie Audette's either confirming or denying. Now, in the book, The Dillinger Dossier, there's about 20 pages worth of this that he transcribes from his audio recordings uh, between the two of them. Now, I'm going to read you a couple choice ones here because they stand out to me quite a bit. So Audette says that by late May or early June of 1934, they had come up with a foolproof plan that was engineered and designed by Louis Paquette, who was Dillinger's lawyer. But Audette insisted he really did not know the details of it. Now, he also says that he knew Anna Sage, he knew Martin Zarkovich, and he knew this other guy, who supposedly is Jimmy Lawrence. And then he goes on to talk about Anna Sage's death. As we know, she got deported back to Romania, and she died in April of 1947, and apparently there's some mystery surrounding it. It was reported that she had died of liver disease, but Blackie Audette insists that she was murdered because of what she knew concerning the Biograph conspiracy. 
I find that pretty hard to believe that they're going to wait 13 years to go track her down and somehow kill her and then the cause of death be liver disease. But we're going to go ahead and uh, run through some of these questions and answers. Now remember this is between J. Robert Nash asking the questions, Blackie Audet answering them. Question. I always felt that her death in Romania occurred under highly mysterious circumstances. Name drop. I know she threatened to get up on stage and talk about the case. Answer. That's right. What do you know about that? Answer. She was rubbed out and laid on the side of the road, you know. Question. But who would do that? The federal authorities? Answer. No. That only leaves the other side. Answer. That's right. Question. Would John Dillinger approve of that? Answer. Well, it had to be done. As we know, Dillinger is not a killer. Question. What about Polly Hamilton? Answer. She didn't know too much. She knew that something was going on, but she didn't know what it was all about. But Anna did because she was playing that part, which they reference, uh, you know, the ringer, the Jimmy Lawrence, the other person. He goes on to say how Anna Sage and Martin Zarkovich were paid off to participate. They were paid by John Dillinger, of course. Question. Who was the man on the slab? The guy named Jimmy Lawrence? Did you ever meet him? Answer. Yeah. Did he ever work for Anna Sage? Yes, he did. In what capacity? Answer. He was, well, I don't think he worked for her, but he was one of her men. And then he says that he was basically a pimp. This is an interesting one. Question. How long had he been in that area? Answer. He hadn't been in that area too long. Johnny's the one that set all this up. So let me ask this question real quick away from all of this. You have the pool hall lady who says that she had known this Jimmy Lawrence guy apparently for about three years since 1931. But now we have Blackie Audette saying he wasn't really in the area that long. Well, how how long is that? Like, can we get more specific? Then he goes on to talk about how Louis Paquette had set all this up. One of the questions was, did he send someone there to Romania in 1947, or did he know someone there? And he's referring to John Dillinger. The answer was, someone followed her over there. Question, and we're dealing with a man who's still around, huh? Referring to Dillinger. But not only that, we're dealing with murder too. And he basically, Blackie Audet goes on to say, well, it could keep me in prison, you know, if he would talk about the fact that John Dillinger was still alive. Question, did you know about these events when they were happening or did you learn later? Answer, I knew about them when they were happening and that the man who supposedly was there to play Dillinger was given $30,000 cash for play acting. The guy didn't know he was being set up. They thought he was just playing a role as John Dillinger. He didn't know he was going to get shot. And then Sarkovich might have gotten half the money. Then Nash says, you were at the biograph, weren't you? The answer was, to see him killed. You were what, a witness? The answer, we just wanted to know everything was going to turn out the way it was paid to turn out. Question, the Bureau discovered that they killed the wrong man, didn't they? Answer, I think they did. Question, did you go on looking for him after that? Answer, I'm not sure about that. At least they've never talked about it. The FBI know that I know a damn sight more about it than they do. Then he asked, did the FBI ever come and talk to you about it when you were in prison? Blackie answers, no, of course. I won't talk to them anyway. I won't talk to them inside of prison or out of prison. That's one thing I don't do. And then here's a question in reference to what Dillinger and Audette did after the shooting. Then what did you two do? Did you just get into a car after the biograph shooting and drive west? Audet answers yes, and then he explained that him and Dillinger drove the northern route to Wisconsin, Minnesota, then straight west. Audet goes on to say how happy he was, and the only thing that he talked about that he wished he could do was get Evelyn Frechette out of prison so that she could be with him. And then he goes on to say that he took him to an Indian reservation out west, and that's where he stayed. He just kind of retired and went into farming. Then he says how he corresponded with Audrey, and the last time he got a letter from her was about six months before this interview. And then he says that she would go out to the West Coast and visit him. And at the time of this interview in 1979, she was about 93, 94 years old. 
she would still go out there and, and visit him, apparently. And then he goes on to talk about the reservation that he took Dillinger to. said it's right across the California line in Oregon, not too far out of Klamath Falls. The reservation closed in 1942, and according to J. Robert Nash, all records of those living on the reservation were lost in a fire inside the general store where they were kept. The question was, did those people on the reservation know who he was? Blackie Audet did not answer. Next question, did he ever change his face, get anything done? Answer, yes, he did. You know, for a long time, he used a lot of gum Arabia. Do you know what that is? And then J. Robert Nash says, yes, it's the stuff that Willie Sutton used when he was doing his shit, which Willie Sutton was a, a different criminal. Blackie Audette goes on to explain, it makes wrinkles. He used that. He grew a beard, and he got a pretty good beard, and he looked a lot older than what he was when he got married. And he goes on to say that he got married. He married a beady girl, and a B-E-A-T-T-Y. And the question was, he married a what? The answer, a beady girl, an Indian girl, beady, the reservation. That's not too far out of Klamath Falls, and they had four kids. Are the kids still alive? No, two of them are dead. Two boys got killed in the war. The girls are still alive. Did he eventually have any surgery done? Yes, he did. And then the question was the nose area or the chin. Well, he had his nose. He couldn't breathe right through his nose anyway. Blackie Audet goes on to say that it was broken when he was a kid, so he couldn't really breathe right out of it and that his nose was kind of flat. Next question is, did he become respectable? Did he go into a business or something like that? Answer was, he went into business right out of Beatty. He had a farm there. Next question, he must have been in touch with his folks or his dad. Oh yeah, he was in touch with them. Are you the only other fellow that knows about this? And the answer, between him, his sister, and me, I think we're the only ones who are still alive. Homer was killed in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1934. He says Homer knew about it. And then there was another question that says... Harry Pierpont said a very strange thing before he died. He said, I'll take a little secret with me because he was executed in Ohio Penitentiary uh, just a couple months after the Biograph shooting. Um, I tried looking this up to see where it was validated. I could not find any kind of, of like official records of him actually saying that before he died, but it's also Pierpont could have been talking about a lot of fucking things. Then it goes on to further questioning, do his children know who he is? The answer is no. Did he ever tell you that he might make an announcement before he died? The answer, I think that before he dies, he'll say, well, I fooled you all these years. Question, what if no one believes him? Does he have proof? A trunk full of proof. Blackie Audette raises up his fingers on his hands and he said these, which would have been the fingerprints. So, we have Blackie Audette referencing the fingerprints that would prove his identity in 1979, but apparently they're not good enough to prove that he was actually killed by the FBI. You see where the contradiction's coming in. Question, do you remember a walk-down pool room at the end of the alley leading off Lincoln Avenue and next to the biograph? The answer is yes. Then Nash says, a woman called me and told me she operated that pool room and witnessed the shooting that night from a stoop next to the pool room in that alley. The answer is yeah, but that was the back end of the pool room. And the biograph victim never ran down the alley. From the recreation of the crime scene, you can see him in the alley. You have this lady saying that there was somebody in the alley. But apparently, according to Blackie Audette, whether he's bullshitting or telling the truth, he says that John Dillinger never actually ran down that alley, even though you can look at historical photographs at the pool of blood at the entrance of the alley. So, there's that. And then he goes on to say he had a lot of people who looked like him. The way he looks now. His face is all wrinkled up. It's a hell of a lot worse than mine is. That was the last time I saw him in 1974. According to Blackie Audette, Dillinger's wife died in 1976. And that, as of 1979, during the time of these interviews, he was still alive. Question. And he has slate blue eyes. Answer, yes. Question. Did John figure, as long as I don't surface again, they're going to accept that, because if they don't, 
They're going on the spot. Is that the idea? The answer, that's the idea that was planned. Question, the background of this man, the victim, obviously he had no relatives. Answer, he had none. Did he know Evelyn Frechette? No. See that answer right there? No. So you're telling me that Jimmy Lawrence did not know Evelyn Frechette, according to Blackie Audette, and we're putting a lot of stock, or not we, but J. Robert Nash is putting a lot of stock into what Blackie Audette is telling him throughout the course of this book and everything like that. But yet, he says that Jimmy Lawrence did not know Evelyn Frechette. J. Robert Nash also claims that the photograph found in the purse is probably Jimmy Lawrence. So, then he asked, do you know anything about this fellow, which was the victim? The answer, his wife died about seven or eight months before he did. The guy who took the fall, as far as his people are concerned, he was brought up in an orphan's home, so we didn't know any of the people he had. People were coming out of the theater, and the FBI agents were shouting, stand back, stand back, this is Johnny Dillinger. And of course, he goes into the site outside the biograph. Blackie Audette talks about the women who dipped their handkerchiefs or part of their dresses and the blood kept them as souvenirs. Same with some guys. And he says that, yeah, a couple of them did do that. And he says that he saw that because he actually walked up to the fucking body to make sure the guy was dead, even though he was a wanted man. He said, I wasn't scared to walk up to the body because they weren't looking for me. They were looking for John Dillinger, and this was basically like a heyday, like everybody was freaking out crazy and shit. Blackie Audette also says that the man who was shot did not reach for any kind of pistol before he was shot. Then Blackie Audette says John Dillinger Sr. actually did have money uh, because J. Robert Nash claims that he didn't have enough money for the $50 embalming fee, but Blackie Audette himself contradicts this by saying, yeah, he gave his dad like ten dollars or $15,000 when he visited him right before his death. And then he goes on to say that, yeah, he uh, talks about his dad and how John told him to basically surround the coffin and all this shit so that they could never pull up the body or anything like that. And as we know, John Dillinger Sr. says that it was because he was scared of grave robbers, which that was a huge thing. And they would probably think John Dillinger did have some kind of money or jewelry or maybe take a souvenir of their own. And I will say this, like Crown Hill Cemetery even said that, uh, I mean, one of his headstones was stolen at one point in time. So the links that people will go sometimes kind of fucked up. And then he said that uh, Dillinger had about $70,000 when he started his new life. When he dropped him off in Beatty, Oregon at the Indian Reservation, he said that he himself was apprehended and sent to Alcatraz. This was shortly after he dropped Dillinger off there. Then he says that Blackie was paroled from Alcatraz, but he ended up having to return. He's uh, the only man to be sentenced there twice. And uh, he was the last prisoner off of Alcatraz when it closed in 1962. And he said that he saw Dillinger on the West Coast on and off until his own final arrest in 1974 for the Seattle bank robbery, for which he was again sent to prison. And this is what he was in prison for when J. Robert Nash met him and interviewed him. But every time that Nash tried to get the town name out of him, like where the fuck he was on the West Coast, he said that he tried to persuade him so many times, and Blackie Audette would never, ever give him the name of the actual town in California. Like I had said, according to J. Robert Nash, this whole testimony of Blackie Audette, plus the results of all the investigative research over the years, reaffirms in his mind that, you know, the guy outside the biograph that was shot was not John Dillinger. Like I said, a lot of information, probably kind of boring for a lot of you guys, I don't know. But uh, I did read a lot of other stuff besides the, the question and answer interview. So I already brought up the fact that Blackie said that Jimmy Lawrence did not know Billy Frechette. Okay, that could be a total write-off, not a huge deal. Also note that Blackie Audette himself had not even been in the area for very long. And Audette also says that the Sioux Falls robbery 
was on March 6, 1934, and that he was involved in it. He said he was one of the guys in that robbery. This happened three days after Dillinger escaped from Crown Point Jail, and this robbery was set up by Babyface Nelson. It was a daylight bank robbery in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. There was a green Packard sedan pulled up to the Security National Bank and Trust Company in Sioux Falls. There were six men involved in this. John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, John Hamilton, Tommy Carroll, Eddie Green, and Homer Van Meter. Blackie Audette was not involved in this at all, but he specifically says that he was involved in this robbery. So, how much of what he says do we really want to believe here? Not to mention, do we really want to assume that John Dillinger is going to befriend a new guy just a few months and then just take off and do all these bank robbery sprees and be like best friends with him to the point like he knows his entire life and knows the plan to get away. I mean, it's really hard to believe because like I said, John Dillinger had a close, small circle. He did not trust that many people. Now, Blackie Audette did have a crazy reputation and a lot of his stories are confirmed and corroborated by other sources. So I'm not saying like everything he talks about that he did through his life is bullshit because we can confirm and corroborate a lot of his stories, which the dude was insane. But to think that he randomly came in, you know, late 1933, early 1934, and him and John Dillinger were best friends and shit like that, personally, I find that hard to believe. I would love to see the letters or postcards that Audrey would send to him and shit like that. I would love for those to be available. And also, like, another thing, even though John Dillinger never got exhumed, like, the cemetery kept, you know, denying it and shut it down and everything like that, why don't we spend a little bit of time trying to track down those people or the ancestors of the people who actually dipped their handkerchiefs or their dresses in this dead man's blood? It would be so fucking much easier just to get a hold of that shit, cut a little piece off, do some DNA testing, boom, fucking problem solved. I don't know if anybody has ever gone that route or even tried that for that matter, but personally, if you've got to swerve around a fucking cemetery and everything like that, I would definitely roll the dice and try to figure out who had those articles that were dipped in blood, try to get some DNA testing on them. But that's just me. Now, I've been rambling on for a while. We're going to stop, take a quick break, meet you back here in a few minutes, go get a drink, grab a beer, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever you got to do. I'm going to take a break. I'll meet you back here in a few minutes while I play some advertisements. All right, so we're back. So let's talk a little bit about the eye color here. As you know, that is a huge thing that everybody points out on the autopsy. And as you know from the coroner in 1984 who saw the autopsy report and straight up said, it really doesn't even strike me as odd that they had the wrong color. It's probably bad lighting. Everybody was in a hurry. J. Robert Nash states that everybody was super careful and took their time with the autopsy. Everything that I have read is contradictory to that because... Even from Dillinger's family members say, no, it was complete chaos. They were trying to get it done. And you got to think lighting of a room, you have a shitload of people in there while it's happening because, well, the deputy coroner accepted bribes for the local politicians and all their friends to come in there and watch and get it fucking done. So there is that. Now, we also heard from Stephen Rossmore, retired medical doctor, on that last episode, the interview, he said the same thing. He's like, that isn't even really a big deal. There could be clouding. There could be all kinds of stuff. So I went ahead and tried to look up some medical stuff about eyes changing color after death. Because everybody claims that, yeah, eyes can turn from brown to maybe blue because they'll get cloudy and they'll look a lot lighter. But it is impossible for eye color to change from blue to to brown. Now, I'm not saying that it can happen or it can't happen, but this is from the Office of Justice 
programs from the U.S. Department of Justice. This was in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, Volume 53, Issue 3, date published May 2008 on pages 626 to 631. The authors are Elizabeth Abraham, Masters of Science, Margaret Cox, Ph.D., and David Quincy, Masters of Science. What they did, there's a, there's what's called a Knight's Assertion, and this was referring to Knight's Forensic Pathology, 3rd edition, 2004. And this was stating that eye color changes after death, before the eyeball is fully decomposed. So the research that they conducted was a series of pilot experiments with domestic pig eyes, and they were supplied by a local butcher one day after slaughter. As in humans, blue eyes in pigs are less common than brown. In the main experiment, there were 13 pure blue eyes. All isolated blue eyes changed to brown or black within 48 hours at room temperature and higher. In addition to the isolated eyes of the domesticated pig, the head was also obtained in order to observe post-mortem change of eye color in the eye. So, a blue eye turned from brown to black within 72 hours at room temperature. The reason they did pig eyes is because they are anatomically closest to human eyes. If iris color consistently changes post-mortem in humans, then this artifact must be incorporated into victim identification protocol, including disaster victim identification software. And this is literally what the fucking medical article says. Autopsy reports should also note this artifact in order to prevent inaccurate victim identification and unwarranted exclusion based on differences in post-mortem eye color. The main experiment consisted of a controlled observational study of 137 isolated domesticated pig eyes. The eyes were observed over several days in three different environments, each at a different temperature and monitored every 12 hours, beginning with their placement in one of the three environments. First environment was an LMS Series 4 cooled incubator, temperature being at 4 to 8 degrees Celsius, 39 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit. Second environment was an isothermal fume cupboard, room temperature 21 to 26 degrees Celsius, 70 to 79 degrees Fahrenheit. And the third one was a gallon camp plus two oven, 30 to 36 degrees Celsius, 86 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit. So, there actually is some proof that eye color could possibly change post-mortem, depending on the environment and the amount of time. Now, I know you guys are like, well, I mean, he was in the autopsy room within, like, 12 hours, you know, within 6 hours, within 4 hours. But we also have to take into account the temperature. The temperature in Chicago on July 22nd was 102 degrees. On July 23rd, the next day, depending on your source, it was anywhere from 105 to 109 degrees, which is still one of the hottest, if not the hottest, days on record in Chicago. This shooting happened at night. I can guarantee you I'm from the Midwest, like two hours away from Chicago. We have that humidity, man. We got that humidity. I guarantee at night it was probably 95 degrees plus. Easy. Easy 95 degrees plus. And that's like not even counting for humidity. So we have to take that into consideration when it comes to the eye color as well. Also the fact that it was a bunch of chaos there's a whole bunch of people. Fuck, you can get on Google, type in John Dillinger autopsy, and literally see pictures of, like, crowds of people posing with the body while he's in full rigor mortis. You know, it's that famous picture where everybody thinks it's his dick, but it's really his arm just popping up. You know what I mean? But you see, there's, like, chicks in bikinis, like, posing beside the body and shit. So you cannot honestly tell me like that and you had the like I said the deputy coroner taking fucking bribes so politicians and all their friends could come in and you know watch the autopsy of John Dillinger the shit was not carefully done it was done accordingly but they didn't take extra care and I'm using air quotations while doing this not to mention as all you crime nerds know along with me heat speeds up the decomposition process 
All right, so keep that in the back of your mind. Think about that. All right, let's move on to the fingerprints. As we all know, this is what the FBI used to identify the body, among other things. This was the main thing. Now, I do find it odd that the FBI never officially named any man who took the prints and ID'd him. And unfortunately, the name on the fingerprint card is illegible. You can't even read it. Now, according to J. Robert Nash, even though law enforcement and fingerprint scarification experts say that fingerprints can't be considerably altered, J. Robert Nash said that's medically untrue, and this is according to the medical experts that he interviewed. Well, I interviewed a medical expert too, not on fingerprints or scarification, but he straight up said, he's like, that's not a big deal, like it's still there, it's just there's some scarring. It's altered a little bit, but the main points of the fingerprints are still there. But J. Robert Nash does say it's simple to destroy them by grafting skin from the ball of the hand or skin from the torso from the back of the top knuckle to the fingertip. Fingerprint experts claim that nobody actually tried this until 1954, though. So that's pretty much out of the picture. Medical experts who studied pictures of the body's fingers said that the prints were barely disturbed, and if someone did attempt to remove the prints, it wasn't done professionally, and it wasn't done good. Obviously, he went to a criminal doctor who worked for the underworld. You know what I'm saying? So he didn't go to Beverly Hills. So, according to J.J. Kern's autopsy report and the pictures, the dead man had tried to remove his prints with acid. In 1935, John Dillinger, lawyer Louis Paquette, was on trial, and uh, Lake County Deputy Sheriff Ernest Blunk was indicted for helping Dillinger escape from Crown Point Jail because he was considered to be a corrupt cop. Ernest Blunk was also appointed by a judge named William Murray, and I talked about him in the first three-part series, this is the judge that would not send John Dillinger to Michigan City Prison, which was maximum security. He instead sent him to Crown Point Jail. Judge William Murray was also friends with Martin Zarkovich. Pretty interesting connection. Now, Ernest Blunk was the only person used by prosecution as a fingerprint expert. He said those were Dillinger's prints, which were on a Chicago fingerprint card, not an FBI one. Now, granted, supposedly this is a huge deal. This is not a huge deal to me. They were probably trying to do it as quick as possible and used whatever the fuck they could. Granted, I could be wrong. I don't know. A little bit of my personal opinion in there. Sorry about that. Now, the FBI still says that they took the fingerprints, but they can't actually tell you who the person was who took the fingerprints. And again, Nash refers to the fact that Dr. Charles Parker received the corpse at 1145 on July 22nd, and he was with it until early the next day, and he saw nobody take fingerprints. And to be honest with you, if it's on a Chicago PD fingerprint card, there's a good chance it was either taken at the scene or even after the autopsy. Nothing during the autopsy or nobody ever mentioned anything about hands or fingers looking like they had ink on them. And that is a curious fact, but that doesn't necessarily mean they weren't taken after the autopsy or during the autopsy or anything like that. Nash also claims some of this proof as being that they say on the card that he was killed by G-men and that nobody called federal agents G-men except underworld criminals. This is not true. Nash contradicted himself a little bit. I believe I talked about this in uh, part one or two. To build the image of an invincible bureau, Hoover relentlessly spent much of his time controlling that public image and manipulating the press and newspapers and radio in those days. He cheated and lied to build that FBI reputation, such as creating out of whole cloth the image and actual words of the G-Man. For instance, he issued a statement and reiterated that statement later on in an article for the American Legion magazine that FBI agents captured George Machine Gun Kelly in a rooming house, and when they burst through the door of his room, Kelly, according to J. Edgar Hoover, stood quaking in his underwear, pleading, 
don't shoot G-Men, don't shoot. Now, that is the exact phrase that I had stated, and that is from the Dillinger Dossier book. Now, as we know, that is not even, he didn't even say that shit. So, which is it? Did the feds themselves never use the term, or did they? Considering the fact Hoover himself used it on record in a printed article. Now, it was definitely used as slang by all kinds of underworld guys. You know, G-men, that was government men, that was federal agents, okay? And even though he used it referring to what Machine Gun Kelly said, that doesn't necessarily mean that the federal agents themselves did not use that term. So technically, Machine Gun Kelly is given credit for coining that term, but actually, if, if that's not true, if he didn't really say that, then it was actually Hoover who coined that term when lying about the arrest of Machine Gun Kelly in September of 1933. Nash also talks about an error on the fingerprint card. The card says the person was shot at 2424 Lincoln Avenue. The actual address was 2433 Lincoln Avenue. Now, as we know, he uses this as a little bit of proof to discredit the fingerprint card, but unfortunately, the autopsy report that we have all been putting so much faith in as being proof this isn't Dillinger also has the wrong address. The autopsy report has the address at 2450 Lincoln Avenue. So, you can tear apart a fingerprint card for having the wrong address, but when you're using the autopsy as facts and proof, we don't even bring that up or, you know, we're just gonna not mention that. I kind of have a problem with that. So, we also have to get on to the fact who actually killed John Dillinger? Now, according to witnesses, the man who fired the shots was a big guy. The agents directly stated as being involved were not. They were all of medium height, about five foot eight. Martin Zarkovich was well over six foot tall. I mean, he was a he was a bigger dude. We also have to keep in mind that according to Nash himself, there were over sixty agents there. So, the example of height only gives about five references. What about the other 55 agents there? Didn't hear anything about that. Nash also states that Dillinger was basically executed. He noted the bullet entry and exit wounds of the dead man, and says that the two female civilians that were hit by ricochet bullets after the bullets would have hit the ground after exiting the head. So, basically, like, the guy is laying face down on the ground, couple guys come up behind the guy, put some in the back of his head, and after they exit the front of the face, they ricochet and hit these women in the legs, which, I mean, these women were hit by strays or ricochets in the legs. We get that. I could totally see that as a possibility, but we also have to consider if, if it's going to, if dude's going to be face down, you have an exit wound, it's just going to ricochet right back into the face or the head area somewhere, unless he was falling, or unless his body had turned and he was falling at the same time as catching that second bullet, whatever the case might be. Now, like I said, I could see that as a possibility. I get that. But this has really nothing to do with the actual identity. This is basically a tangent on who actually killed him, Martin Zarkovich, or the federal agents. Also, we have to note that J. Robert Nash is not a forensic scientist, has no experience as a crime scene investigator. He just happens to be the one guy who reconstructed the crime scene in 1970 from the information that was provided on the autopsy report and the pictures of John Dillinger's dead body. Now, I do have to also state this. As you guys know, I'm a huge mafia guy. Done several episodes, and I've stated this before. Judging by the exit wound below the right eye, you know, uh, right higher cheekbone below the right eye on John Dillinger's dead body, that had to have been a low caliber round because a 45 exit wound in the face, bro, you ain't even going to have your eyeball. You know what I'm saying? You're going to be missing a chunk, okay? Because the exit wound, depending on how close you are to actual shooting somebody, the exit wound is going to be devastating on a 45. So the mob and mafia would always use smaller rounds. They would use like 22 and 38 caliber pistols because upon entry, whether it be the head or the body, 
those low caliber bullets are going to slow down and they're actually going to bounce. They're going to bounce around for a minute before they exit, if they even do exit. And that's to basically shred up just whatever. That's why they would go for the head. They do like a small 22 caliber to the head. So on entry, that bullet would just bounce off the skull a couple times inside the head and then exit. And it would always go in a different direction. So we also have to consider that trajectory as well. So if you're shooting with a 45 straight down on a body who's laying face down in the street, first of all, that exit wound is going to be intense. It's not going to be a little slit, tiny hole exit wound, okay? And that round is going to go probably straight through and through. Now, if it's a 22, the exit wound is definitely going to be at a different trajectory as when it entered because it's bouncing off of, you know, whatever kind of bone, maybe even tough muscles, the, the bullet slows down. So, I don't think it really matters necessarily that he was on the ground execution style, you know, face down. Like, he recreated the crime scene. There's actually pictures of him doing that in uh, the Dillinger dossier. But, like I said, he's not a crime scene investigator. He has no knowledge or education in forensic sciences. So, we do have to keep that in mind as well. And I'm not taking anything away from this dude, J. Robert Nash, obviously highly respected. I respect the shit out of this guy. But we do have to point out that depending on the rounds that were used on John Dillinger, that's going to determine the trajectory of the exit wound and the size of the exit wound and how close the pistols were to Dillinger when they were actually fired. And I'm not gonna, I can't honestly sit here and say that he wasn't in a falling motion. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to sit here and say that there were five shots fired. Only three of them, I believe, hit Dillinger. Maybe four. I think three of them only hit Dillinger. There's two extra rounds that could have strayed off or even ricocheted for that matter as well. So there's a lot of different plausible scenarios right there that we have to consider as well. So let's get to the teeth and certain scars on the face. The affidavit was the first time I ever really saw the teeth mentioned. The disinterment affidavit, or the affidavit for disinterment, whatever the fuck you want to call it, um, it notes that the right incisor on top was gone and that the autopsy photos showed a full set of teeth. Now, Nash says that in pictures and video before his death, you can see an incisor tooth missing on the right side and that autopsy photos show a full set of teeth. I've seen the before pics and the videos. Those are all easily, easily available online. To me, it does not look like he's missing the tooth. It honestly looks like it's half broken off in a vertical direction. And then the remaining half of the tooth looks like dark gray or black because it's probably dead. That's just, unfortunately, my opinion. Obviously, they're easily accessible pictures. You can just look them up yourself. You'll see what I'm talking about. And to be honest with you, I'm literally missing that same tooth. And his looks like a fuller spot than mine. It looks like half his tooth is still there. Now, I was unable to find any pictures of the autopsy that show his full set of teeth that are mentioned by J. Robert Nash or the family in the books and the affidavits for disinterment. I did not see... You can easily look up John Dillinger's pictures, like, of him dead laying on the slab, all right? Now, granted, his family probably does have more photos, more information that is given to the public, and that is totally fine, but I myself could not find anything to even substantiate that. Plus, we also have to consider it's 1934, grainy photos, grainy video, so I don't know. We also have to address the scarring because doubters of John Dillinger actually dying say that the autopsy had no signs of plastic surgery, and there is a scar that Dillinger had on his upper lip that isn't there in the autopsy pics. This scar is a hairline scar on the upper lip just left of center going vertically. Autopsy pics are not that great. I mean, they're pretty, they're pretty damn good for the time, but... John Dillinger also had a mustache, okay? 
Nash also brings up that his uh, cheeks were too full and puffy. The dude had a mustache, and he was bloating, and it was 100 plus degrees, and he took a couple rounds to the face. So yeah, dude, his cheeks are going to be full, they're going to be puffy, dude's decomposing right there in 100 degree heat. That's going to happen. Of course they're going to look fuller, you know what I mean? Now, the actual autopsy report in two places states multiple healed scars of the face, chin, and volar surface distal flanges of the fingers of both hands. Those are circular scars, as if you would take acid and drop them with a dropper on your fingertips. There were healed scars of the chin, oblique in direction, 2 centimeters on either side of the midline. Healed vertical scars over the temporomandibular joint, 3 centimeters long on either side. Just so you know, your temporomandibular joints are located on both sides of your face, just in front of your ears. They connect your lower jawbone to your skull. They help you move your mouth and jaw while you're chewing uh, and speaking. So there is actually proof of plastic surgery. Whether it was done good or not, I mean, that is a fact that we have to consider, but we also have to consider that there is proof on this person's face of plastic surgery. I mean, they are literally on both sides of the of the temporomandibular joint. We also have healed scars on the chin on both sides of the midline. So, I mean, there is evidence of plastic surgery. And trust me, in Nash's book, Dillinger Dossier, he gets way more in-depth on it. And basically, the doctor claimed that he had put some kangaroo muscle in there. And Nash's claim when he interviewed medical experts is that there's no way that kangaroo muscle would have been accepted by a human body. It either would have drained out or it would have been, like, severely infected. So, (sighs) I ain't going to lie to you. I don't know what to think. I've already been receiving questions for the for the Q&A on the 200th episode, and one of the questions is, what do I think about the John Dillinger death? I'm 50-50 on it. You guys all know my preference. I would love to see this dude survive. I know he's a criminal. I get that. But he's an Indiana folk hero. It's just such a fascinating story, and I hope I wasn't too harsh on trying to debunk some of the claims written by authors or whatever the case might be, but it's fair to give both sides of the story. I'm more about finding out yes or no. I really don't care either way. I have no invested interest in this, but I do want to know, and that's why I fucking did all this research and, um, you know, read, I think, three or four books crazy shit, read a bunch of articles, whatever the case might be. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. You guys come to your own conclusion. I'm not sure exactly what to think. So that's about all I got for you. Ways that you can get a hold of me. You can email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at mysterious underscore podcast. I am on Twitter at podcast MC. Obviously the Facebook page, the Facebook group, but yeah, I'm on TikTok too. I really don't get on there that much. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I got too much other shit to do. So I really don't make too many videos on there or anything like that. But uh, yeah, if you want to subscribe to Patreon, we do three episodes a month, two minis, one full length. We have a $2, $5, and $10 a month tier. You can go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. Check out the episodes I have in there. If there's some shit you like, you're good to go. Um, you can sign up if you want. If you want to do a one-time donation, you can go to Venmo at MC Podcast. And uh, I'll be honest, a lot of times when people make a Venmo donation, I offer to send them Patreon episodes, you know, as basically a thank you, you know, for, you know, a whole gratitude thing because I'm appreciative of all you guys uh, supporting me. And, you know, I'm always late on episodes. You guys never bitch or complain about it. I haven't really read any reviews for a couple months. I'll be honest, you know, it's just kind of tiring sometimes. People listen to one fucking half of an episode or five minutes an episode and, of course, drop one star because 
oh, this guy is shit, blah, blah, blah. I recorded this episode three years ago, and I only listened to five minutes of it, but I know everything about this podcast. It's fucking ridiculous. I, I honestly haven't uh, haven't looked through those. So if you have left a review, thank you so much. It is greatly appreciated. And, yeah, I think that's about it. Until next time, I will see you folks on the flip side.